if you're talking about a game where the components isn't the most interesting thing about the game, why talk about it at all? You know, why bother? Okay. Okay. Talk about the thing that is the most interesting part about that game. Right. And go in, go into depth for that and talk about how it affects you in the play session and beyond the play session and, you know, all of those interesting things that make game that make you want to play games. No one no one talks like that, you know, down the pub, like, oh, have you seen this new game? The components are a three out of five. I think, I think we know what we're doing. We'll just see how it goes. I think it's gonna be fine. Yeah. What you're really pleased with isn't always what other people want to listen cool. to. I, I might I do an intro to... just to put us in the right frame of mind. It's always fun. Thanks, Norm. We're going to record now. Do you want to get back down into the cellar? Yeah. All right. I might blow my nose. Do you want to start recording for the nose blow? I've gone recording. Frontier Sakaya. Oh. This is Radio Gold. Radio Gold. Gold? A half a million dollars worth. Already dug? Already dug. What about the woman? What about her? She part of it? She's all of it. What's that supposed to mean? None of your damn business. Right here, go. Right here, go. Where the hell are you supposed? My husband was good at robbing trains. Your husband was a fool, Mrs. Lowe. Because he got shot in the back in a whorehouse? I'm sorry. Welcome to Train Rush, a bad podcast about bad games for bad people. Brought to you today by catastrophic Craig Taylor and evil Joe Reese. <laughs> Apologies, couldn't, couldn't resist. Got a new toy, Joe. Got a new toy. Little voice changer. What the hell is that? Uh, that one's called a Titan. And as we're Titans of Trains, I thought that was the most appropriate one to use. It sounds a lot like you bringing back your analysis mode from uh, one of your previous episodes. I can't remember which one that appeared in. I think I think it's about time you brought it back. Back in the day, I couldn't afford the voice mod thing. So I had to do that with my actual voice, Joe. Like, can you imagine? That's how the poor people live. <laughs> Having to use their own voice to communicate. Ugh, gross. It should be sent down the mines, a lot of them. Anyway, what are we talking about this this week on our weekly, regular weekly <laughs> podcast? <laughs> oh dear. God. Right, yeah, this week we will mostly be talking about John Borer's Colorado Midland. Yep, named after the Colorado Midland Railway, Craig. The first standard gauge railway to run through Colorado. So an interesting little fact for you there. You know my thoughts on foaming, Joe. <laughs> but some of our listeners will care, so um, I'll be quiet for this bit. Well, that, that, that's it. All right, cool. I'll carry on talking then. Great. Yeah, so I think it's a cube rail game, Joe, or is it a card game? I'm not sure. It's kind of both, right? And it can run with anywhere between three and five players, including the higher and lower of those numbers, over the course of an hour, give or take, depending on the player count. And the players. Or as per usual. And it is something different that has not had a lot of coverage. So we thought it was worthy of discussion. On that basis alone, that's a lie. Actually, we've looked at lots of stuff that other people haven't covered. And it it hasn't been worth our time to discuss. This one is worth our time to discuss. 
Let's discuss. Grady, where did you find these two pecker woods? It's a very simple game. For the most part, you've only got two choices of action per turn. The rules disappear really very quickly, and immediately you are thinking about the other players' actions and what they're doing and what their plans are, or should be, at least. Using the Mogul's model, the complexity on this is like a two, right? Or a, a Michigan sandwich on the complexity ratio, whatever their scale is. It's it's very minimal. I remember we met in the Red Lion pub in Avery. Um, that was sometime in the summer of 2021. And we, we ate lunch and we played Haggis, which is a two-player card game, which at the time actually meant nothing. But looking back, it seemed quite pretentious, us there in that saloon playing a game of cards. And I said to you at some point, I've got a game I'd really like you to play, Colorado Midland, but it is a train game with victory points. How did you react to that? I had to go to the toilet to get rid of a little bit of vomit that had come up into my mouth, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. Because train games with victory points are rubbish because I like to be able to reinvest my victory points, otherwise known as money, otherwise known as victory points, otherwise known as the artist formerly known as Prince, back into the system. So there's kind of a, a re-gambling your stake, if you will, or positive feedback loop, and there's efficiencies along with that. Whereas games where you take abstract actions to pump out points. I don't know. The line's very arbitrary. There's plenty of games I like that are victory point driven that I enjoy, mm-hmm. but I've typically preferred games that follow more of an 18xx style money is points and reinvest it to try and win. It's funny because at the time, Colorado Midland was just another game, really, in a pile of unplayed train games. Um, And it was something I thought we'd just play a couple of times, see what it was like and move on. Except we ended up playing it repeatedly that summer going into the winter over the course of eight months. And Going back to that link to Haggis, like its inspiration tissue, Colorado Midland allows for communication between players through each player action. I remember reading ages ago about how JC Lawrence's group in California used to play where communication outside of the actions in the game wasn't allowed. Words to that effect, right? And I think it was around 18xx mostly. Playing this when we got to the more advanced levels where the signaling was just through what we did. And actually the tapestry of this game is simple enough that you can work towards communicating that way without it seeming like some unimaginably complex lingua franca thingamabob that demands a Rosetta Stone to decrypt, right? Not every game does that. Sometimes games are too hard to read, but they don't enable people to do that. Or sometimes they just don't have the depth to create those clever moments. And I love the fact that that is enabled through such a lightweight system. Where maybe I lose, I don't want to say lose trust with this game, but maybe something that's a challenge for this game is its brittleness. I feel it is subject to individual game instances being derailed, if you will, by players playing irrationally. And I think the initial taste it leaves with a typical audience for wits and box sets may make it harder to develop a cadre of players who can play it rationally, who are willing to send those signals, who can read the signals, who can see the opportunities for intelligent and exciting play. Does that mean that I'm decrying the thing as unplayable? No, because I think that actually maybe those irrational plays and the brittleness become part of a fabric of meta play that you'll experience. And I think any keen-eared listeners at this point may guess now that we've actually got a positive review 
coming later in this episode, which is a quite a rarity because we're often accused of being too negative about everything. First time I played this, Joe, I was left with a kind of, and we went through the rules, I was left with a, an is that it sensation, mm-hmm. you know, until we actually got going. And even at the end of the first game, I would argue there was a touch of the old, oh, what is this? I wasn't immediately excited by it. The way I see this show maybe is that I'm your psychiatrist and you're going to air all your issues and I'm going to write some notes and maybe, hopefully, uh, you'll come to some answers by the end of the show. I don't know. <clears throat> Why don't you uh, take a seat? I suspect that I will be more likely be dragged away by men into a white van, but anywho. Is this seat taken? It is now. I like the game the way it is. Well, now I bring all sorts of pluses to the table. I hardly ever bluff and I never, ever cheat i don't believe it (laughs) neither do i i like the game just the way it is so in a thread that was kind of left untied at the end of our last show about originality um, we had quite a few discussions as a result after that episode aired extending our thoughts and those thoughts and feelings kind of resurfaced again as we played colorado midland And as we were talking, we stumbled into something you started to call design distance. Are you ready to talk about that? It's in your notes, almost certainly. Well, yeah, I've got got a few notes. Is it not in your notes, your extensive notes for this? this episode everything's in my notes joe and nothing all at the same time it's it's amazing how i've achieved that i I get norm just to type mine up don't you get norm to do that for you i get jake klothmanstein of the uh, gaming moguls to type it up but everything says absolutely yeah it's just just page after page of absolutely very hard to work with just like your good self so rough have you got something to say about design distance craig Yes. So there's a few elements, but the key thing I wanted to at least touch on in the podcast about design distance is this concept that if someone is using a new version of a product, or let's just say it's a new style of game. So you've got an audience, Mm -hmm. they use product A, you then introduce them into product B. Now product B is superior in every single way but it's redesigned from the ground up. So the way you interface with it is very different. The adoption for product B could be far, far lower than you expect because people are alienated by it. People, to a certain extent, people like the novel and the new, but only to a certain point. If that gap of experience or design is too large, then there's almost a repelling effect where you don't give people enough familiar anchor points to work from to be able to appreciate the new thing. It seems to me the concept of design distance is two things, I think. The polarity of mechanisms, for example, chess versus Yahtzee. But not only that, but it's, it's tied in with the audience perspective and their already established expectations or preconceived ideas of what the game should be. The distance is two points on a graph, right? Mm. Hold up a second. Distance is two points on a graph. (laughs) You have the origin and the destination. Distance is meaningless or can't be defined without those two points. So in my metaphor, what the operator is expecting to get (laughs) is the origin, the thing they're familiar with, the experience they're entering. The destination is what they actually receive. LogicBot 4000 to explain (laughs) my thing for you, Joe. Can I ask LogicBot another question? Go ahead. So, for example, you know, the designer of chess, famous designer of chess, if that designer came out the next year with Yahtzee, I think 
that would probably maybe be a bit of a disappointment, but it would be acceptable, even actually celebrated as the, you know, the designer that could design two very different things. But if that designer, the famous designer of chess, called Yahtzee Chess 2, would that have an impact? Does not compute. <laughs> a logic box is shutting down. You're pretty much in there, right? I had a lovely data point courtesy of the Web Archive Organization, Ooh. who, yeah, I know, I know, they're, they're very official, the Web Archive Organization. And if you just stick some dots in there, it's almost a web address who kept a record of Ted Allspatch's Age of Steam map survey. There was some really racy stuff in there. So post-2007, he deleted it, the rich vein of information it contained to keep the Age of Steam information to his greedy, greedy self, Joe. But it's okay. I'm not going to mention anything that would help you or the audience make an Age of Steam map because I don't want any more of those in the world. <laughs> so the whole premise of this survey was to try and work out what people want to have Age of Steam maps visually, mechanically. Do they care about the designers? Transpires, they don't care about the designers unless they're Martin Wallace and oh, that's not even a joke that was actually a data point <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of the questions on the survey was around how many changes to gameplay the players want when they bought an Age of Steam map. Mm -hmm. It boiled down to more than three major changes to maps are considered worse than no changes at all. Ooh. It's just too much to comprehend on top of the standard Age of Steam rules. Keeping the number of changes small is often more difficult for designers than you might expect. Every change has an impact on the game, and additional changes are often incorporated to offset the effects of the initial changes. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. So Ted says for the, the normal board gaming Age of Steam playing folk that they no. cannot uh -huh. comprehend more than three <laughs> changes to the rules. Is that what he was saying? He just said that, that the, the self... They cannot comprehend. Oh, they cannot comprehend. Um, no, here's the thing, Joe. The initial part of the survey, Ted said that actually 85% of respondents were enthusiasts or addicts of Age of Steam. So it's not just the normal cannot, Age of Steam play. Cannot, cannot comprehend more no. than three changes. No, it's the, it's the experts can't comprehend more than three major changes, Joe. Major changes okay. all right all right so i guess the point here is right when people come into a game anchored to an experience they're expecting to have or you know a part of their brain they're expecting to tax when the thing doesn't let you use any of the heuristics you've developed to date or subverts all of them and makes you feel foolish <laughs> maybe that can leave a poor taste in the mouth until you re-gear those heuristics for the game you're actually playing rather than the game you thought you were playing. <laughs> John Ball was uh, chipping on the survey that was quite interesting was he didn't like maps that merely changed the spatial aspect. He liked to increase the size of the Age of Steam universe by changing a rule or two on the map. I mean, there's, there's more stuff in there, but that was the pertinent bit to design distance about how you and I might want to have all the changes, but that's actually a reasonably weird thing. We're in the minority. The ones that can comprehend <laughs> the changes to the... <laughs> No, I don't think that's true. I'm not sure our standard of play would, would say that. <laughs> no, I think so. <laughs> I think we're operating off an assumption here that the audience journey is you've got a captured audience, an audience that likes what you've done before, or at least uses what you've done before. And I don't know, like when you look at Colorado Midlands, maybe obviously some of this is me injecting my experience in here, projecting, if you will. Inject, projecting. I was expecting a cube rail game, and I have certain anchor expectations for what a cube rail game is. 
So in the case of a player coming from uh, the the mass market Q-Brow games in 2011, that would be Chicago Express, German Railways, Kansas Pacific, uh, Samarkand. And for those who are the audience for the Winsome game releases, many more on top of those, notably John's Prairie Games and Han Heidema's Riding Series. All different, but there's a familiar structure and reoccurring tropes, each game influencing the next. We've got buying or obtaining shares in stock, auctions, operating railroads, earning dividends from the investments in the railroads, and even Golf Mobile in Ohio, which is a standout design in, in terms of the different way it implements those those tropes. It still uses each of those tropes. I think the useful corollary is when things are too close in terms of design distance. And how that can, if you're a certain uh, type of consumer, alienate you? Is there this Goldilocks window in the middle where something's different enough to warrant your intellectual curiosity and you investing in the new artifact? That gap's big enough to make you not feel like you're buying the same thing again. But it's not so wildly different that you feel like you've been left cut adrift as a fan of, say, cube rails. And where does this sit in terms of that design distance? I mean, don't have answers for these questions, they're just questions. I've got answers. Have you got answers? Go on then. Well, if you look at Colorado Midland and the tropes established by Winsome Games, there is quite a striking difference. You do not buy shares in stock. There are no auctions. There's a kind of open and shared control of the railroads. And you do not earn dividends from investing in the railroads because you cannot invest in the railroads. So instantly, there's an immediate leap away from audience expectations. So let's let's dig deep into the, the history of Colorado Midland and where it came from, and, and maybe we can relate this theory of design distance to it. The story begins with John Borer, young John Borer of Pittsburgh, He had a few game groups uh, with a background playing war games. Now, one day, a member of his game group brought in a crayon rails game called Rails Through the Rockies by John C. Luke. Howdy, boy, you got a good game going there? Designed in 1981, and it's set in Colorado, recording the efforts taken to connect to mining districts by railways traversing through very difficult landscape through the Colorado Rockies. And it's sort of, I guess you could call it a pioneer of sorts for the train game genre. Now, according to John Borer, the game was not only effectively broken, and I won't tell you how it was broken, in case anyone fancies playing it, but was not historically accurate either in terms of the engineering efforts the railroads had to take through going through these mountain passes. And from out of that reaction actually came John's first game, designed in 1994, Tracks to Telluride. Um, it's also called Colorado Rails, depending if you got the Flash Fancy version or the Budget Edition. Guess which version I've got. Budget version because you're cheap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it essentially takes that game and builds it from the ground up. He created a new map for it. He created something called the Probabilistic Pass Completion System. Trademark. 
and also the Hysterical Event deck, which uh, simulates the trials and tribulations and offers character-building experiences, Craig, for all those who play it. Apparently, that was, that was the purpose of that design. Flash forward 16 to 17 years later, and John returns to the Colorado Rockies to design Colorado Midland. Now, in terms of the timeline, this is after working through the Prairie system, um, following his success with Chicago Express, and would be released the same year as South African Railroads. So in terms of design distance in a mechanical sense, we have one measurement from tracks to Telluride, which is based purely on John's prior experience of other games up until that point. So the war games, crayon rails, and we've got another point of measurement from a long journey of exploration and refinement and a comparison between something like South African Railroads or Chicago Express. Oh, the theory is obviously a simplification because design isn't always a linear journey, is it? I'm not necessarily a specialist kettle designer who's designing the only set of kettles in the world in a kettle laboratory devoid of influence from other parties and all I do is design a better kettle from now until I'm dead. So in the real world, multiple people can be designing similar entities, multiple people can be designing things with broadly similar objectives, games, fun generators. Yeah, of course, the design distance thing is a huge simplification, right? Like you can use it to try and examine a single game. I'm using it more as a model of trying to understand why a game might not land with an audience, mm -hmm. a pre-packaged audience. So in this case, with Colorado Midland, the precursor isn't necessarily a single thing. The precursor is an aggregate of all the things that have influenced that design tradition coming before it. <laughs> Perversely, on this occasion, it all happens to be John Bohr's work near as damn it. Yeah. <laughs> so there is only one designer, but that's by the by. It's why I think the case for Colorado Midland is actually uh, a complex one. But I think it's been overshadowed by South African Railroads, um, also released in 2011, which is an excellent game in its own right and, and is the apex of years and years of that refinement, but built on clear expectations for what makes a great cube rail game. Colorado Midland, on the other hand, inverts all of those expectations by design and which game seems to be the most popular maybe it's easier just to sell the audience a faster horse a faster horse oh you don't know god life man dick turpin no um do you remember the old henry ford quote if i sold what the customers wanted then i'd be sending them faster horses uh yeah that that old quote yeah indeed that old quote Something that ties into this is a theory called Anxiety of Influence by Harold Bloom. He published a book in 1973. And his theory is that all creators borrow from past works that have influenced them, essentially. And he came up with a, a few terms to describe the effect of the influence on the designer. So I had to look through those. And Tracks to Telluride is called a tessera. So John Borer basically elaborated on Rails Through the Rockies, basically took the ideas but reconstituted them because there was a belief that the original game failed to succeed in its purpose uh, or point. Mm. So he added some exciting, thrilling mechanical mechanisms to the game, like the event deck to simulate the, the ebbs and flows of, your, of the railroad and create an excitement through some luck and the dice and everything like that. Now, Colorado Midland, if we're looking at Harold Bloom's work, would be called an ascesis. So basically, this is where the artist 
John Bora, he diminishes both his precursor's achievements and his own. So effectively saying what my precursor did was awful, but actually what I did earlier was awful too. And it's a moment of purging himself from all other influences, creating an independent system and individual success and achievement based on that kind of repellent of, I'm not going to design a game like this. Do you find any of these pieces come into your editing process for the podcast, Joe? I just don't want to be like those other fellows who do a train game podcast <laughs> in the long distance past who no longer do train game podcasts. I just don't want to be like Joel Gage. I just can't do it. Or maybe you think, oh, oh, I could just be so much better than the Dice Tower. I could be bigger, stronger, harder, faster. <laughs> and this is how I'm going to do it. And then, and then finally you land on an episode where you realise all your previous episodes were shit. And this is going to be the episode episode well i can i can say that with pure honesty that all of your early work was awful yes <laughs> then then joe came along and saved the podcast oh my god yeah so colorado midland what it does it, it removes all of the history that john tried to inject in the first place he removes all the history because he has learned through previous games that actually to make a train game exciting you don't want a simulation of the trials and tribulations of the railroad and he actually writes that in the rule book to uh, south african railroads and i quote <clears throat> When I first designed the original Veld Sporveg and Veld Railroads games, I read a whole bunch of books about the history of South Africa's railroads. As a result, the game suffered from way too much crime. <laughs> Playing a bunch of war games on the Boer War just aggravated the problem. I've since learned that while including detailed historical facts, limitations and restrictions are great for war games... <laughs> They distract from good train games if carried too far. <laughs> yeah, that was um, my best John Bora impression. John Bora approved. Very good. Oh, <laughs> Craig, can you please concentrate? This is a serious show. And so there's this moment of realisation and going back and completely adapting a new game and taking all that experience developed over years of designing games. Mm. He's picking through the bones. He's picking through the carcasses of his past effort there mm -hmm. and trying to redeem what redeem the redeemable and stick the rest down the trash compactor. Mm -hmm. I can whittle this into something. Here's the core thing that actually produces the enjoyment of this game, what little enjoyment there is in here or where the enjoyment lives. And the rest of this is just normal. Noise. Just get rid of this noise, stuff it down a compactor, press the big old red button that I imagine Americans have on their trash compactors, compact compactors, compactors that make it go and shoot it out into your drainage system. And you just keep the good bit and build and build around that. Yeah. So similarities between tracks to Telluride and Colorado Midland. Uh, we have a similar hex based map. Although Colorado Midland is simpler, cleaner and smaller. We have mine claims instead of shares that go into a player's holdings or hand and can close, generating no further income. We have mountain passes, which are especially difficult to build through. And the players are eager for the railroads to connect to the various mines on the map. However, we have none of the financial management. Income is abstracted to victory points in Colorado Midland. There are no random chance cards or random fluctuations in income. Get rid of all the dice crap. I mean, sorry, get, get rid of all the dice. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
in tracks to tell a ride, you have all of this legislative, legislative, all this, right. In tracks to tell a <laughs> Legislative. Do it, do it phonetically. Legislative. In tracks to tell a ride. <laughs> in legislative. You are such a useless bastard. It's frightening. In, shut up. In, <laughs> in tracks to tell a ride, there is a legislative structure which forces players to interact at certain points so there's a section where it says you know 1.5 now you need to argue whether someone should go through a particular pass or not have an argument roll a dice is there going to be a rates war yes there is going to be a rates war because i don't want cray to earn this much money okay then let's roll the dice and it's trying to force the players to come into conflict that feels like we're in a chaotic boat all together and the storms were whipping us asunder. And so I'm sorry, Joe, it's ripped your sandwich out of your hand. But for me, it's whipped my eye out of my face. <laughs> but we're all on this chaotic boat together. It's us versus the game system. And who comes out on top? Of course, there's a competition there. But, you know, realistically, I came out of that game feeling like I'd gone through a journey with you rather than a battle of wits against you. Whereas in Colorado Midland, you don't need all those rules. The conflict is emergent as opposed to explicit directions being given by the game to punch each other. Here's where you punch each other. Here's where you kick each other. Mm-hmm. Here's where you tweak each other's noses. That's the difference. Whereas in Colorado Midland, it's a more akin to someone throwing a leg of bacon in between a pack of dogs. They're going to fight over it. It's, there's an attractive prospect there, but I'm not explicitly telling the dogs to fight. I'm merely encouraging it. Like all good gentlemen do. Well, <laughs> I I, 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 no, I don't want to get cancelled like Jimmy Carr, so I won't do any of that. Well, I'm happy to be the Neanderthal of the podcast with Neanderthal views. That's already known. It's already known. Your eyebrows have never been thicker. (laughs) 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 Yeah, and as the listeners may or may not know, I do have bushy enough eyebrows already. You know, I didn't realise that was something that would be made fun of in this episode when I came on tonight. I only normally do that face-to-face. Well, I say face-to-face, it's hard to see you through the eyebrows, but anyway... (laughs) Um, so <laughs> do you know what? At school, at school, this this kind of thing gets pointed out to me all the time. You've got bushy eyebrows. You've got a bald spot. You've got a big nose. Come on! Now I come onto this podcast and I'm getting the same thing. This is ridiculous. I get abuse about my hair spot all the time. I mean, it's ceased being a bald spot. It's more bald than hair. It's more hat than head. Ouch! Ouch! Well, yeah, it's my way of differentiating myself in the UK, Joe, because hats are deeply disapproved of over here. Christ Almighty! It's like I'm sitting here playing cards with my brother's kids or something you nerve-wracking sons of bitches did you enjoy tracks to tell a ride at all there was an element of nostalgia there it reminded me of playing the early versions of warhammer 40,000 when i was a lad when the thing was essentially an exploratory pseudo role-playing experience where you just got screwed by random chance tables for four hours and then you went home tired because you had to think for four hours you also had paper cuts on your thumbs trying to find the pages in the rule book you didn't get that with tracks to telluride in all fairness yeah I, I, I don't know yeah i didn't really like it no no not at all like i'm pulling the only positive out of it i can it's the design felt old-fashioned it felt dripping in the wrong kind of luck and beyond the setting the only joy i really received from it was nostalgia Mm. i um i played it once solo as well i actually enjoyed it more as a solo game ouch well yeah (laughs) yeah sure you're used to the vagaries of chance being the thing you're fighting when it's an automaton 
So that's tracing one line of development and progression from tracks to Telluride. How does this game compare to something like Chicago Express, which is at the other end of John's progress as a designer? It's interesting, isn't it? Because this game probably sits as far away from Chicago Express as it does from tracks to Telluride. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's obviously it's jumped far far away from tracks to telluride only retaining a couple of core elements but it only shares one or two elements with chicago express as well yeah it sits nestled plainly in between the two i mean to be fair we're talking about abstract concepts here but you could argue it's equidistant yeah and i think john borer he wanted to create something utterly different from his fantastic breakout game which you know queen signed and earned him i don't know probably a few dollars what kind of specific? Well, yeah, that yeah, that probably possibly <laughs> a few dollars. <laughs> no, he he must have earned millions, surely, from Chicago Express. Millions. It's like the best. It's one of the best games ever designed. Surely, he is a millionaire now. I hear he lives in a train shed in the sky. He's so rich. So. <laughs> The problem is, and here's the problem, it leaves a poor initial taste, I think, because of audience expectation, or more to the point, likely audience expectation. That's quite a bold statement I make there, but let me try to defend it or flesh it out. It has a big old chunk of setup random, okay, a big old chunk, and you are left with a hand of cards that feels more akin to something that you would be attached to for 10 minutes during a round of trick-taking. But instead, you're going to be sitting here for an hour working this random hand of cards. You have limited variety in actions and no ownership alone over the railroads so that leaves you wondering okay what's the point here i've got random things in my hand and i have limited control over the activation of the of the things by myself especially at the higher player counts and i think you couple those things together with what seems like a rule set that doesn't allow you to do a lot it doesn't give you a lot of options you've got limited things you can do on your turn you may be left grasping around wondering where the game is it's only when you've played it enough to actually see the meaning of those actions and what you can do with them, be it from a communications point of view or be it from a, just an outright, oh, I can work towards this opportunity, but it's going to take me a few cycles around the table to do it. Until you've played it enough to see those things, you don't really know where the game lives. My advice would be, if you're going to play this once, I'd almost say don't bother. This isn't a one and, oh, I had a wonderful experience down the game club kind of game. This is a let's commit to play this four, five, six, seven times. You're not going to experience the fullness this has to offer on limited plays. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad artifact. Like an advanced power tool or even, dare I say, it, 18xx, you're going to have to put a little bit of time into to get the joy out of because the gold in this mine isn't at the top of the shaft. It's significantly deeper down. Let's dig deeper down. <clears throat> Mind your step there. Well, well, of course, fantastic. Absolutely. Oh, God, I hope we don't run into Norm again down here. Absolutely. We'd like to try and teach you the game in a way that's not boring. If I don't really want to teach you the game, I just want you to be able to listen to the podcast in a way that's not boring. So you're offering to not teach the game then? <laughs> you want me to not teach the game? I don't mind which one of us not teaches the game. Well, you're pretty good at not teaching games, so why don't you go for it? Oh, very good, very good. Okay. 
Colorado Midland is an unusual cube rail game in so much as the players don't have any direct interest in the train companies that will sprawl across this board. Instead, the players have interests in the mines that are present on the board. The individual mines being cards which are handed out at the beginning of the game. These cards dictate which locations the players want the railway companies to connect to. Should railway companies connect to said locations, they have the capacity to receive points. But while the players have individual mines, these are grouped by towns. So the locations the players want the railroads to hit are shared. So the biases of things you're interested in can vary massively game to game and can certainly vary massively from player to player in each game. And the actual interests you have in the train companies is very, very limited indeed. It essentially amounts to you want to try and force them to go where you want them to go, a la Northern Pacific ish but you really don't care which company gets where okay like they are just a vehicle to activating mines in the right order and as usual a first player is decided at random but that random player will get a very important assignment whoever is assigned the first player they have the most important decision they get to decide which color cubes will be used to mark the starting train company it's yellow that must yellow <laughs> Joe has made it so we always have to pick yellow because it's a non-decision. I get quite... I'm upset. Anyway, yes, it's, it's always yellow. Yellow and starting in Denver. It always starts in Denver, but that yep, bit is... always is, yellow. But it is Denver. That is literally a rule. Always being yellow is just Joe being insane. I don't think it's insane to retype the rules and print them off and put them in <laughs> the clamshell. And to send them to everybody who's bought it on the BGG list as an official update and do a fake signature of John Bora and a photo of you next to him as a cardboard cutout. I mean, where does it stop, Joe? Yeah, with a little quote saying, thank you so much for your excellent revision of these rules. <laughs> um, so, um, so that's done. That's done. If you pick yellow and then the game goes and the first player gets to take their first move. The players have one action per round. And the actions are pretty limited in breadth, but obviously not limited in depth or consequences. Action one is they can perform a build. All players can operate on behalf of all railway companies. They have five build points, which they can spend on behalf of any and all railroads. So you can do mixed builds, bit of yellow, bit of black, bit of red. The terrain has varying costs depending on what you're building through, as one might imagine. Should we describe the map? Just go to BGG and look at a picture of the game like, Gang, you're probably on a device that has an internet browser on it. Just pull the car over, go to BGG, look at a picture. If you're not in a car, I'll give you permission, as long as they're not near anything hot or electrical or sharp. <laughs> the thing that we're probably neglecting to mention here is there is a carousel of cards, a player-controlled carousel of cards. I mean, it's kind of more like a conveyor belt than the carousel, really, where players will seed into the conveyor belt cards from their hands claims from their hands to say i'm willing to have this thing connected to at the end of every round n number of cards n being equal to the number of players in the game will be deleted from the conveyor belt and if they're deleted and there's no train company connected to the cards you get no points if there are train companies connected to the cards then you will receive points what's important here is that the scoring mines will close before the unscoring mines and we do that in order from top to bottom 
And so where your mine claim is in the conveyor belt is incredibly important. Priority matters, right? So if your mine was lowest, with more point, last to be removed, then you will be the person who's last to put a card in, which increases the likelihood of your stuff rescoring. So there's a bit of finagling around priority there, or more to point, the lack of it. Let's say temporization. I, I don't know. What's the opposite of priority? There must be one. Norm! Inferiority. You're an inferiority, Norm. There you go. We're, we're, we're jockeying for inferiority, apparently. <laughs> or subservience. Whatever I can do to help the train rush. Christ alive. The other action you may do is delete one of your mining prospects from the conveyor belt and insert another one from your hand towards the back. The cards have a value that's essentially defined by how close they are to the starting origins of the train companies. So if a claim is reasonably close to the potential home stations of companies, then it will be worth fewer points because it's easier to connect to. It's more of a sure bet. Maybe you can even connect more companies to it, improving the amount it pays out. If a claim is very far away and it's unlikely that you're going to be able to connect to it without help, or maybe it's only going to be connected to by one company at most, then the points value of it is adjusted accordingly. Each of the cards is uniquely named with characterful names such as Massive Penis and <laughs> Billy's Big Bollocks and all sorts of euphemisms for so dicks. <laughs> that appears to be the theme for the names of the mines in the region. I've no idea why. Fred's Massive Ejaculation. That's one of them. And <laughs> you... <laughs> Sorry. Oh, wow. I can't tick safe for child listening on this podcast. Never mind. Straight out the window. <laughs> to be fair, when the game's theme relates very openly and very seriously about the concept of sexual repression and... And frontier anxiety, uh, we do ask all miners to engage with the subject in a mature fashion. And if they cannot do that, uh, they ought to just switch off now. Yeah, agreed. Now, here's the thing. There is a first player marker that will rotate around the table. So it doesn't just go Craig, Joe, John, Craig, Joe, John. Mm. It could go Craig, Joe, John. Then Joe will be the first person in the next round. It goes Joe, John, Craig. Craig, stop teaching the game. Well, I, just, I just tried to mark that the first player totem passes round. Therefore, if you're first player this round, you are going to be last player next round. And the person who's the first player this round, Joe, stop laughing, yeah. has a special action they may take in lieu of their turn it does forget about that though because i'm just having a look at my copy the first player marker is what color oh it's yellow yeah. is that john boar signaling that the first company must be yellow yes you're, you're, anyway you're, you're such a tip <laughs> it's such a tip it's unreal um, the said person holding the yellow train may yeah, start you get a special power yeah okay you get a special power well, special you, ability you say what <laughs> one second one second one second everyone no 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 no, 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 no. Stop talking over me, Joe! I don't mean that, Joe. You can go on, you do this, but then... Okay, so normally there's a choice of two actions, but the first player gets a very special third action to choose from. That being to start a new railroad. And that involves taking a cube of a new colour, and you can choose the colour, and there aren't any particular rules around those colours. But apart from the fact it can't be yellow, because that's already gone, right? Mm -hmm. It can never be yellow. And you put the cube on a starting city, and there are four to choose from. And that is it. And it doesn't feel enormously satisfying or very efficient with your turn, because you feel like you're only just placing one cube down. 
What happens when your company runs out of cubes? I know you weren't trying to teach the game, but sure. there is another rule which I think is quite still break. There's still breakout box. Uh, we'll do some special mm. effect for that. So oh, holds it. like um, a little cartoon Uwe Rosenberg waving. You know how he does that at the side of the rule books. Hello, I've got a little game tip for you. What? Just like that. You've done the voice fantastic. I don't need to do a silly voice myself now. I know. So that wasn't a silly voice. That's his voice. That's his voice. Yeah. <laughs> The yeah, the vibe here is there are six railroads that could potentially be in this game. Each railroad has different colour cubes, as one might expect. There's a red one yeah. and a black one. Stop, stop, stop it, Uber. When a railroad company runs out of cubes in its bag, they can pick another colour cube from the available bags of cubes to um, extend their railway company. And the yellow railway becomes the yellow black railway or the yellow red railway. And it can carry on building from the end of its line with a different color cube. And mm. everybody's meant to track that. Alternatively, you can just use online gaming tool to change the color of the cubes to be yellow. But in the real world, what you might do is go to your box of, from our sponsor, Rails on Boards, stroke cubes for me, and get another 30 odd cubes of the appropriate color. Throw the red ones, or you, or throw you the can, red ones into the sea. Or you could, or you could keep them in little bags. Yeah. Or you could uh, throw the, the coloured. God, like I give up. Yeah, you get the gist. Like you can, you can strap railways together. That's the detail. Strap railways together. Magic done. Yeah, colloquially termed as double bagging. Oh Christ, life. Why didn't you do that in the Uber voice? That would be so much better. It's called double bagging. It is. It's called double bagging, Craig. And if you're really lucky, you can quarter bag. Yeah. If you've spent your load, go, 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 get another bag. <laughs> Fucking hell. Fondle around. <laughs> Take out some new cubes. Quite the lie. Oh dear. So yeah, that's the breakout box finished. Thank God. <laughs> if I can't teach you one way, I'll teach you another. But I'm going to get the job done. The game ends when any player gets to 30 points, I believe. Is it 30 points is a game ending number? 60. 60. Oh, double that then. The other aspect of this is the game will end when any given player runs out of cards. So there is a linkage between how fast your cards come off the conveyor belt and if they score. So each of the players will be depleting their hand of cards at different rates because here's the thing. Every time one of your cards comes off the conveyor belt, you have the obligation to place another claim card from your hand onto the conveyor belt. At the end of the game, the person who's been most successful in making train companies connect to perversely named mining claims will be the winner of the game. That's the 10,000 foot view from which you can see the 5,000 foot cocks. Joe, <laughs> would you like to go into any more detail? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Also, not that I'm teaching the game or anything, the game also ends if you cannot use your building points, all five of them, or if every mining district is connected, and I've never seen that happen. I've never seen either of the last two happen. No. But, you know, it's, it's one of those details. It's one of those details, oh my god, there's rules in there that's essentially just there so you don't sit there till the end of cosmic time <laughs> if everybody sits there not making moves. Like, no, ridiculous, carry on. That's just, that's just utterly, if a game ended that way, just pick the game up 
stick it in the bin and consider it money well lost. <laughs> like, you're, you're playing it wrong. <laughs> Should we explain the mine claim penis references? I think we always certainly can. I think it's I think it's fine, but can we finish explain it? Otherwise, I just sound like I'm unhinged. <laughs> I sound like I've lost my mind. Yeah, do you, you, did you write down any examples of the names? Or are we going to have to do a breakout section in post where you solemnly read them as if you're in a library? No, I think I think the audience need to go out and buy a copy themselves to find out the, the various uh, penis euphemisms that John Borrow uses to name each and every individual uh, mind claim there is in a game i think there's 65 in total um yeah so speaking of which craig i think this podcast is going to be so successful people are going to try and rush out get colorado midland but with us talking about it i think there's just gonna be too many people doing that and um it's just going to sell out and you won't be able to find it anywhere it's too late it's already happened our effect is so much more powerful than shut up, sit down. So our games are sold out before we even talk about them. <laughs> you have so much more influence than Quinn's. It's frightening. <laughs> he actually cries at night thinking about you, Joe. But nothing nothing to do with your influence, I happen to add. <laughs> so if, if you didn't follow any of that, here's the game in less than 10 seconds. You feed mine claims into a sliding scoring mechanism in the hope you can time it just right to earn repeated points as you struggle to weave the railroad the way you wish it to go. Less than 20 seconds, I mean. You have not been taught the game by the train rush. Congratulations. And just to remind all our listeners now, we do have a positive review a little later in the show. But first... Analysis now. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch! In Colorado Midland, all the shared incentives are fixed to the geography of the map at the very outset. You're randomly allocated a selection of these mine claims, and you begin the game by looking at these and thinking, what the heck am I going to do? How am I going to get these rail companies to hit all of these mine claims and earn me all these points? And if you imagine starting the game with all your shares bought up already, like the end game case for most train games, without the choice about aligning yourself with a player who you think is going to make a good job of that railroad or those routes and make clear good decisions, you are tied to all the other players around the table to different strengths. You are relying on those other players to help reach various mining districts or you just won't see a return on that investment which is not really an investment but in a thematic sense you've gone out into the mountains you've found gold you found silver coal whatever other valuable minerals but it is worth absolutely nothing unless you can convince the players around the table to go the way you want to go the initial asset allocation you're not given fungible assets essentially if you win a private in the opening auction in a classic 1830 style, the asymmetry of the thing of, oh, I've got a block here or I've got an extra build here is almost secondary to the fungible aspect of it. I can convert this thing into a bucket of cash, which then lets me buy into different incentives. Everything you're assigned at the start of this game is non-fungible. I can't convert this big interest in purple into a small interest in grey or vice versa, right? So that's an interesting thing versus some other rail games. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think it's a massive inversion of those expectations. At the beginning of this game, you do not have any control or choice over the setup asymmetry. And, and that's radically different from other train games where you can 
you're defining your own positions, be it as part of an opening auction, be it as part of a draft, Dallas 1846, be it just for the simple purchase of shares, you are building your own set of incentives. Yeah, your own asymmetry. Right. And you've got other games which may have set starting positions, such as in the beginning modes of 18EZ. Um, you've got positions defined by turn order, like in Iberian Railways, where the players will start their railroad in different locations on the map to connect to various different towns. You've obviously got 1830 or something like Kansas Pacific, which you've already mentioned, which starts with an auction, which defines that asymmetry. And other games start with an asymmetry like 18 Lilliput or 18 GB, which give the players some special powers at the very beginning of the game. The closest I can think of is 18 Mainline or 18 Africa, where the player is handed a selection of shuffle shares, but they still have the control. They can choose half to keep and half to discard. There are none that I can think of making this game really stand out and really special, I think, which starts with an entirely random shuffle. I think you could contrast this to a game we played recently called Brian Baru, where that has a strategic map and, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable to call it a strategy game, but it's also card-driven. It's trick-taking. You've got a handful of things that give you options on to what bits of the board you can take effect and which races you can progress up. But the cards are reallocated pretty much every 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. You haven't got a single hand of cards that you're attached to for the entire duration of the hour and a half play. But then, compare and contrast, that may seem more palatable because you're like, okay, I've got a bad hand here or something I've determined in my mind is a bad hand. Well, in Brian Baru, you have almost two fail-safes to prevent that bad hand happening. Well, one, you draft the cards, right? Right. So you're responsible for crafting the hand. To a certain extent, but you also hold that power over the other players you're making. You're making the decisions about which cards to pass on and which ones to hold on to. It's perceived agency, right? And the other piece you're talking about is that if you lose a trick, you get compensation, right? Everybody gets a biscuit, so even losers get something. Well, actually, more often than not, you actually want the loss benefit, so you want to be the biggest loser. That was a TV show in America, Joe, about people losing weight. They should have called it the biggest subservient or the biggest inferiority. The least priority. The piece that I'm thinking, though, with the Brian Baru that probably is relevant to my thoughts on this. Although you're assigned the cards once and one time only and you're attached to them forever, forever in the context of this game instance, you get to see everybody else's cards. It's open information. That's actually a point we should emphasize there, right? Because we didn't do it during the not teach. The hands are open. So there's set up randomness with the cards being given out at random. And that's that's it. Everybody gets to see everybody else's wonky incentives, which in the UK is a euphemism for your penis, just so you know. So everybody should be reading the tapestry of this game instance and behaving accordingly. Yeah, it is very revealing, that initial setup. Generally, because you've got that random selection of shares, or mining claims as they're called, then you're often forced into a position where you're going to have to take a different tact and you're going to have to try different things based on the outcome of that initial shuffle. It's very hard to fall into a repeated pattern, repeated strategy because you... If you're doing that, you're going to lose, I would argue. Mm -hmm. The best players are on their toes and looking at their hand and and trying to read the card whisperer. What is this hand saying to me, Joe? What's Jimmy's hand saying to me? Mm -hmm. What does Jimmy's hand want me to do? Should I do it? Does my hand want me to do it? And there's a great degree of variation of incentives. And from what essentially is a very limited legislative framework, 
is this essentially a very advanced marble run where I look at my hand, I look at everybody else's hands, and therefore I know, broadly speaking, the shape of my execution for the entire game? I think it's too it's too complex because there are a number of switches along the marble run to divert the balls in a different direction. And every player has got a handful of switches. And while the control comes through only three actions, those are those are enough. They're powerful enough to alter the state of the game. It's all coupled as well. So if I can't mess you up on the track, then maybe I can mess you up on the score in conveyor belt. Yeah, exactly. And the track bleeds into how the conveyor belt turns and how the conveyor belt turns moves the railroad in certain directions because it's in the player's interest to do so. And even that last action, the closing of your mind, it has an impact on both of those, the scoring and which way the railroads will be built across the map. And the length of the game, the opportunity to reach those longer distances or to double score the shorter things. There is definitely a degree of front loading for the analysis to play this properly, though. You can't just play it from the hip. You can't just go, okay, well, we'll see how it goes. And I won't think about my opening hand at all. No, that opening dance forces you to think about your opening hand. That opening dance, the Virginia reel, it must be done because you're going to have a unique hand at the start of this. You've got to work out where you can gain those points and which points you're going to sacrifice. So we're assigned different scoring potentials. I guess, is it theoretically possible that I could have a hand full of all the high point cards? So if everything went my way, my scoring potential, although unlikely because of the distances involved, is actually higher than, say, your scoring potential if you've just been assigned a handful of low and midpoint cards. Sort of, but the the lower scoring cards are easier to route two railroads into, so you can effectively double score, um, but that does require that strategic planning from the very beginning. That's interesting. So then it becomes an efficiency a thing where, okay, Joe is more able to convert his things because they're closer, but maybe I can be more efficient in my play. Yeah, Jeff sent an email recently. Did you get that email? No. You know Jeff. Sent an email. No. Jeff. Jeff Engelstein sent me an email recently about hypergeometric distribution. Oh, okay. I thought he was dead. What? Jeff Engelstein? Dice tower, Jeff, yeah? Oh, I didn't hear that. Indeed, yeah. So, Jeff, he, he used to send out an occasional email to, you know, special chosen people about game design. All right. And so he sent me... Yeah. <laughs> He sent me an email the other day about hypergeometric distribution. So I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. That sounds like something we could talk about on the old train rush. But it's, it's about the distribution of cards based on the number of cards in a deck, how many you're drawing from that deck and how many matches you're likely to find from that draw. So I thought I'd take this information and, and put it into a spreadsheet just to analyse the starting hand distribution and the, the probabilities of how many cards you'll get from each mining district. Because I think one of the discussions we've had is how random is this random selection of cards? We're talking about expectations and coming into a train game. Players enjoy their perfect information. You know, low luck, low random input into their games is 
preferred. And if you notice the development of John Borer's games, you could see that there's a clear progression, beginning with random die rolls in Tracks to Telluride, random flips of chance cards, random mines opening and closing, affecting players differently depending on which mine that they've built to, gradually getting to a point where all of his games have reduced this to absolutely zero. So having this at the very beginning of the game can appear quite upsetting, especially if you're trying to read into your own hand and you're wondering about the chances of you ever being able to build this way and that and meeting the demands that your hand is telling you, you know, that 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 is where you're going to get the points. And, and how unworkable are these hands? Are there flawed hands? Are there superior hands? And I thought I would look into the probabilities a little bit just to get an idea of how these cards are generally distributed between the players. Because as you pointed out before, this is a one-time shuffle. You don't get a refresh in your hand. This is purely at the beginning of the game. The cards are dealt out only once. So a Silverton mine claim, uh, which gets you the maximum five points per scoring. There are 10 cards in the deck. It's it's almost impossible. Like the probabilities is so minimal. You're unlikely to ever get all 10 of those in your hand. However, the, the highest percentage you'll see in this probability is around two, two cards from Silverton. If you're imagining a four player game, the chances are around the table that you're going to get closer to two or three cards from Silverton. And that will tend to be balanced around the table in terms of probabilities uh, rather than one person having a whole heap in their hands. I mean, these are probabilities. So, of course, there's that chance. There's a small chance. There's a, a 0.07 chance that you get seven of those cards in your hand. And I think we've seen a game where someone's had let's say, five Silverton cards in the hand, Silverton being stretched all the way across the other side of the map. So it'd be very difficult to work your way all the way there on your own. I've had game instances of this where I've had tons of Silverton claim and it's virtually me alone. And I've done all right by bloody-mindedly starting a company and just spending all my build points on moving across the bottom because I've made sure that I've left cards on the conveyor belt that either won't score or that I've I've sniped the opportunities to put cards in there that other people are working towards. Just mm -hmm. staying aware of their stuff, leeching off the actions they're doing to progress their own holdings whilst I am, you know, primarily just chucking cubes down to get across the Silverton. Now, I don't know if that was more possible during novice plays when we were allowed to get away with murder because we weren't playing it quite so nastily, or if that's something that would hold true now with the same hand. I think the more we played this, the more ways we discovered of cutting people's hopes and dreams in too. But you do make a really good point that you can actually hit a lot of these points without actually building towards them. I'm not sure what the analytical value of this chart is, mm -hmm. except to say that if you had access to it, you could evidence where they, someone sits on the bell curve when they're saying their hand is disproportionately full of so-and-so. Mm -hmm. You could look at it and go, well, hold up a second. The chances of you having that is 1%, and the chances of you having that count of that is 5%. Sure, you've got a weird hand. But like, or alternatively, you go, oh, hold up a second. Look, you're actually sitting in the peak of the bell curve here, here, and here, and you've got one thing that's slightly weird here. It's, it's, mm. it's a perfectly likely hand. It's difficult to measure and analyse because the possibilities and the variation differ so much every time you play. And the, the deck of cards is a bit of an enigma. If you look at the thing, it seems utterly uneven. For instance, there are only three Telluride cards in the deck, as opposed to the 11 Leadville claims. But the end result is that it naturally creates uneven incentives. It pulls people in different directions. It gives glimpses of hope, greed, and despair. 
despair, which ties into the theme of the game. And it immediately creates tension. So I'm going to talk you through it from my perspective, Joe. Okay, lay back on your couch and uh, I'll continue to take notes. Yeah, cool, yeah, indeed. As a gamer, we have maybe trained ourselves, and I'm now using the royal we, to have a certain expectation of what a game is, and I guess implicitly what play is. You know, games should be akin to sports. They should be egalitarian. They should be fair. Everybody should have an equal chance of winning. And then you realise you're coming to this from the world of a Euro gamer, where everything's even and we all have a decent chance of winning. But this stuff would sound like anathema to a war gamer, where actually different factions have different chances of winning out. Or alternatively, using a, a simpler metaphor, forgetting war games, I remember as a child playing cops and robbers. Sometimes I was a cop, sometimes I was a robber. And robbers didn't win very often, but it's okay, I still had fun. Because maybe as a robber, I was trying to do something different. or It was a more challenging role, so what few victories we got as the robbers were all the more satisfying. This game, if you come at it with the expectation that is, I guess to use a modern board gaming term, balanced, that every instance of it will provide every player with an equivalent chance of winning, whether they realise it or not, you're going to be somewhat disappointed. The cards are your position, and the cards are the thing you're playing to dictate your returns, and those are entirely randomly delivered at the start, with no mitigation by way of drafting or whatnot to even out hands. And unlike other card games, the rounds in this card game last an hour. So, yeah, if you have an expectation that you're going to have an even chance of winning every game, I don't think that's the case. But also, to a certain extent, I'm not sure the variance is as much as the first impression you're left with either. Although there are hands that maybe are harder to work with than others, I think the better players will typically still perform better, be it outright wins or tighter scores, than the players who have less experience. If I am sitting alone with all the Telluride cards, okay, it happens. Like, I know it's only a 1% chance I get all the Telluride cards, but it's, it's, it's absolutely possible. Like, you know, one in a hundred does happen. Ask any bookmaker. I then have to change the focus of my game. It's either those Telluride cards are clock control cards, and I'm going to be burning them to accelerate the pace of the game to diminish other people's long-range cards, so they're as worthless as mine or potentially I'm looking for leeching opportunities. I think a lot of it can be managed through different play. And if it can't be managed through different play, then maybe it can be managed attitudinally. So that's, a, I'm not sure where Telluride is positioned on the map off the top of my head, but maybe I can do a sprint build off the back of it of someone else's build to Georgetown, say. Alternatively, um, go on. Okay. I've used two really awful examples there, but it's, it's, have, it's, it's, it's immaterial. It's immaterial. For the purposes of what I'm saying, it's immaterial. No, right? no, no. All of our listeners are looking at the map right now, Craig. It's not uh, immaterial. You've told them to go out and find the map and take a look at it. Yeah, but they don't care about that map any more than I do. It's just a bunch of hexes, Joe. The point I'm making is about the hand. You've got a weird hand. You play to make the best score you can get out of the scoring potential of that hand amelioration i think that would be you know i could sit there and say i'm not going to win this and get a terrible score and score zero points because i know i'm not going to win it or i can try and run my score as close to you as possible there's a personal value thing here i feel better about the latter than i do a course you win or you lose thing in a game like this 
you haven't got perfect allocation of resources at the start. You haven't got perfect control. If I have a hand where I can't see the path through, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I can't see the path through, well, maybe I'll learn something in trying to forage a path through. If you can't enjoy something like that, then I think it's okay to walk away from the game and the game's not for you. This requires a degree of investment of time and maybe engaging it on its own terms. Do you know what this game kind of reminds me of? Something completely different, The Resistance or Avalon by Don Eskridge. Now, completely different game, but I was playing it not too long ago and it just struck me, this game is revealing issues which I've seen present in Colorado Midland. In The Resistance, basically, you're you're put into teams and you're dispersed randomly around the table. Randomly. Haven't we covered The Resistance on the podcast before, Joe? Yeah, yeah, but probably not enough. I think we should probably talk about it every week, like Game Brain do, you know? Our sister podcast. I think we should just assume that everybody knows what the resistance is, and if they don't, then <laughs> they can go listen to someone else's podcast about it. Just don't explain the resistance. Please don't explain the resistance. No, I'm picking out the point which is important here, okay? So the players are randomly dispersed, okay? The teams are. But I think, like, to get the best out of the game is that everyone tries their best to win every single situation. And it just happens in the resistance sometimes. And it happens in Colorado Midland that you have players who just think they can't win because they believe there was an unfair setup. Sure, that entanglement in the resistance is even more coarse because not only do they individually lose the red person there, the red person there, the red person there, the red person there. You're all losing now Mm -hmm. because Fred couldn't be bothered. And all you blue people, you, you and you, you're winning because Fred couldn't be bothered. Thanks, Fred. Yeah. Whereas with this, it's finer grain. Fred doesn't try in Colorado Midland and Fred costs Craig the six points he needed to get ahead of Joe, who was working mm-hmm, with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. much more rational players. Exactly. And that's that's a potential problem, inverted commas, to starting the entire game with everyone meshed together right at the beginning. You're going to be relying on the other players at the table being able to accurately read this thing. And that is definitely an acquired skill. If the table collectively assesses my hand to have high scoring potential and it's not actually true or it's just based on a record of prior hands you know each hand each time you play it's, in, you know, it's independently random I could have won two times on the trot because I had I played well twice on the trot does that mean that this time when I've got a very average hand that I need excessive management probably not but it's a thing that can absolutely happen because humans are social animals and look at the actors at the table as much as the other elements boils down to this this game does have a degree of bristleness Now, you can shed degrees of entanglement Mm -hmm. by chucking cards away sacrificially, be it during the opening setup or be it through taking the dump card out of the row action. But in reality, because you want to try and score as many of your cards as possible, the default objective for your cards will be to try and score them. And as such, players should be able to read their aligned incentives with other players at the table. And the entanglement isn't just about sharing the scoring. It's also about making assumptions about their building intentions and building priorities. So if I'm leeching off you for a share of Cripple Creek, but you've got three shares of Cripple Creek. Well, rationally, I would hope that you would make effort to spend your actions building towards that. And maybe I can put a little bit in where necessary, but I should be able to leech that off you. And this is where the entanglement and the rational play kind of tie together in the same subject. But maybe you just don't like the idea of anybody leeching off you. So you build towards some other interest that isn't necessarily, by my read, even your best interest right now. This kind of trashy, the commons thing, it's less that. I think it's more volunteers dilemma because 
nobody does it, nobody scores the points. Now, the rational player, Joe. Me, me. Yeah, me. builds towards it. But <laughs> you can't have the alliances and the meaningful interaction without having a degree of brittleness, you know, the potential for kingmaking, the potential to chuck somebody over a ledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they don't deserve to be chucked over, inverted commas, because they're not a threat. I mean, a lot of that's value judgments as well, right? Like, for instance, just because somebody's in the mid-pack now doesn't mean they're not going to be competition later. So maybe I encourage at the table an action to chuck them over a ledge. Well, that's one less competitor for everybody else. I mean, that's 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 rational, right? doesn't look rational to them. Well, I'm not winning. Sure, but you have the capacity to win at some point. Let's delete that capacity and um, carry on with the game. You can end up being frustrated if you if you can read those incentives and read with a fair degree of confidence what a good play would be for someone else and they just don't do it. Yeah, and actually those average-looking hands might be the ones that slip through the net because people are not observing how many points they're actually gathering from those when everyone else is trying to prevent Silverton from happening, for example, which is the big five-pointer. Although your middling hand might not look particularly good, you're scoring all of it. Whereas my incentives that I hold alone and the ones that Jonathan holds alone, they're just temporising cards. And we're converting a lower part of our scoring potential versus you, who maybe has manipulated us both, so you score a higher percentage of your scoring potential of your opening hand. But this isn't your first therapy session, is it, Craig? We discussed at length and after every single play almost as these arguments were brought up around hands and the imbalance between them the asymmetric starts to these games is there a potential fix i guess with everyone similarly disadvantaged there's scant chance of misadventure i'm out well this is well timed you gentlemen mind if i take his spot if you play his hand i would prefer not to it is too late. You have regarded the cards. You've seen them, you play them. The actual core rules are skinny enough that there's something to be said for doing an adjusted setup. I don't know. Maybe a draft mm. where you pick two cards at once and build your hand. I don't know. Maybe a points bidding system where you're willing to bid to avoid hands. There's plenty of games where there's an opening mitigation of the card allocation to make it not just pure randomness. And I don't think any of those things would corrupt the interesting aspects of the this game, the actual flow, the signalling, the the timing on the conveyor belt. Do I think they're necessarily? Maybe not. I enjoy it despite the randomness. But if it gets somebody to the table to play the rest of the game at all, maybe there's an argument for those adjustments. I disagree. Go on, go on, go on. I'm, I'm keen to hear this. Firstly, I don't think the positions are as easy to read as you think they might be. I think even I, after I, 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 plays, rem- Remember, I broadly agree. That's why I play out my bad hands, because mm-hmm. my bad, whack some inverted commas around that hands, because although I might read something as a challenging hand initially, it doesn't always pan out that way. Mm-hmm. So I broadly agree with they're hard to read. Just to be clear, when I talk about adjusting it, I'm talking about if it's the difference between getting somebody to join in on the instance of a game or not, right? I'm not talking about fixing the game for me I do wonder actually if through a draft or something like that you would just ultimately end up with a broader spread of uninteresting hands Mm -hmm. I like seeing how the weird hands play out I also accept that if I've got a player who will refuse to play it that way moving forwards I still think there's enough game left in the rest of it that it doesn't live or die by the random card allocation at the start 
Okay. There's two ways of looking at this argument. Firstly, we're looking at, is this fix a real fix? Or is it Craig just desperate for more friends to play his game with him? So I think I think you need to separate those two things. Let's have a look. I think I don't I don't think the game's broken. I think the game is what it is. It's not a fix. Okay. I'm suggesting a very adjustments to these rules. I'm suggesting a variant for an audience, an audience that John Borer's excellent submission approval sure. of uh, rewriting his rulebook. Can I explain why I'm suggesting that I wouldn't be adverse to playing a house variant? Because people do house rules for stuff all the time, and you know it. It's only our weird board gaming world where people don't do house rules. So why would I suggest a house rule for this? Because like you just said, people react to this differently depending on their perception of fairness and their perception of play. If somebody just cannot get over the way the hands are allocated... Fuck him. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, I, like, just go and play with someone else. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! I'll tell you what I disagree with is this. Oh, oh, my name is Craig, and no one will play with me. Oh no, I really want to play a game. That is the that is the the conclusion I disagree with. Right. I, oh. We were having a conversation about uh, Locomotive Works, and you were saying, oh, I think the audience of this is pretty small. I think there's probably only about four people in the whole of the county of Hampshire who will play this game with me. I'm thinking, well, okay, so Hampshire, I looked this up earlier because I thought this might come up in conversation. So I looked it up, and the county of Hampshire has 1.376 million people in it, okay? And his... Right, okay. Let's be fair. Let's be fair. I said with me, so that's a double filter. Okay. The game and me, right? (laughs) Oh, I didn't realise that. Okay, so (laughs) you're filtering people out. Okay, well, I'm not saying that's unreasonable for the game either. There might actually only be four people who want to play it, even without you. This is my argument here. Okay, all right. It's a small number of people who want to play that game. Probably a small number of pl- people who want to play Colorado Midland. But you know those people. I've been playing this game with you for months on end. And, and you still got this, oh, no, I have to change the rules because no one will play with me. You've been playing the game. You've been playing the game, Craig. You've been playing it. We've been playing it by the rules. I just whacked the microphone. Sorry, I'm getting quite passionate with my hands here. Not not in that way. You're not a solitary miner on the Colorado Plains. So I don't, I, I just, what is your motive there? You've got the players. I guess you want to spread the joy of this game further beyond. But the thing my, is, okay, you do no, that. Let me answer with my no, bloody stop, motive. Stop. No, let me answer where no, I'm going with this, no, right? No, 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 no. What happens <laughs> is you've got an exciting card game here where you don't know what you're going to get every time you play this game all right but you could add brian burrow to it or however you pronounce his name and you could take those cards and you know we can carefully draft them round and make sure that we're all getting an even chance at it and we can you know add some little extra things so it says you know oh if this mine claim doesn't get to silverton well you get an extra three points don't worry about it just chuck it away you get get three points don't worry and what happens is if you start including this oh this minimize the luck that's minimized the spikes in this excitement the random start positions then you turn a game which is by nature meant to be exciting into something which is quite flat that is my review of Brian Burrow there Bur- Boris Boris <laughs> Boris Brian Boris Brian 
Brian, Brian of the Brian of the Burrows, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Brian Burrows. Okay, high, no. high, high King of Colorado. Here's the thing. Right, I think you have kind of actually inferred my motive with reasonable accuracy. Right? How do you make this thing more palatable to a wider audience with a more? Oh, I'll, say, I'll, I'll tell you. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, Joe, Joe, okay. Joe. I, you, I let you speak. Right. How do you make this thing more acceptable to a mainstream audience with mainstream perceptions and appetites for how fairness and luck is allocated at the start of the game? And I think maybe you're right. Maybe in trying to fix that with anything but the most rude, and I say fix, big old inverted commas around that, trying to fix that with anything but the most rudimentary of things that you could basically just achieve with a conversation anyway rather than legislation, you would very easily suck the joy out of it. You could suck the pleasure out of it. Oh God, back to P. Craig, this is a sensible podcast. Whatever system you put in place to even out hands or allow players to make controlled decisions about what goes into their hands will actually weaken the game and, and make it less exciting. Here are my reasons for not meddling with rules, which could be tempting to do if you're coming into this game and getting a bad taste from those initial plays. Number one, the positions, as you've already said, are not easy to read. Every single decision matters in this game. So how the players play out the cards into the conveyor belt, for instance, is really important. The tactical decisions players have has a massive impact on the game state. So it's it's very difficult to predict exactly how things will turn out. And I think also by actually putting that in as a piece of legislation, you're it might, you know, it's when the rule book says there are some advanced rules. I know what you're saying. You're implying to the audience that there's such a thing as unworkable hands. I I would obviously play it rules as written first many, many times before I came to a stage where I'd be offering those concessions. Even then, I'd only be conditionally offering those concessions on the basis of someone at the table who just cannot cope with the way this game is, yet for some reason they were insisting they played it. (laughs) This forces or encourages players to play in uncomfortable setups to think carefully about how they're going to possibly dig themselves out of this trouble, the trouble they think they've been landed in. Mm. Not every player enjoys digging themselves out of a hole for an hour, especially when it's a hole they didn't create. And I know you, I know your view on this, and my view on this broadly is the hole is never as deep as you think it is. In fact, it may not even be a hole at all. It could even be a mound if you leverage it correctly. But some players are not going to look at a hand of cards that they perceive as to being hostile to them and go, oh, I really want to wrestle this for an hour. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think there's a right or wrong to that. I get what you're saying. It's based from a perspective, though, a perspective of I quite enjoy digging out of awkward situations and doing the best I can. Some players want the the race surface to be absolutely calibrated like a 400 meter oval and every single part of it's got equal rebound and the only variance is maybe someone's on the outside and someone's on the inside but that's unavoidable differences whereas some people like the Grand National with all its divots and ankle turning holes and unevenly constructed hedgerow fences and they like the chaos and the drama of that and doing their best because it makes the victory all the sweeter some people don't want to have that that struggle I don't think that is necessarily a bad thing it just means that this game isn't necessarily a fit for them yeah yeah sure and they should go and find a faster horse i guess that's not even based on their hand being objectively worse joe i'm saying they perceive this hand to be a struggle and then cannot reframe that you know they're on tilt they're on tilt from the offset do they want to be on tilt for an hour can they recover from being on tilt and go hold up a second let's just sit back and reappraise what can i do with this the only concession we agree
breed you could really do that wouldn't suck the spirit of the game away would be something like a veto chip. At which stage, why do you need rules for player consent at the table? Why you need to have legislation around what can just be dealt with as essentially a, a civilised conversation of, I really don't want to play this hand, can we redeal? And then you can agree whether someone's hand looks broadly unenjoyable or not. If you find that conversation awkward and you'd rather have a rule set around it where you say, do you know what? Ah, oh, fine, you're fed up with the debate about whether your hand's playable and you feel bullied into playing these hands. Let's all just have a chip where you can shuck it in and have a one-time reshuffle. I'm okay with that. But bear in mind, I'm using okay in the British sense. Like, I'm not really okay with it. But it's the difference between me playing the game and not then i'll i'll accept it except which means i really bloody hate this and i wish i was somewhere else yeah i think there is a psychological impact how the game begins here but all cube rail games are a struggle to some extent and i know we've got the whole thing tipped on its head where everything is entangled to begin with and there isn't that control of buying into that entanglement but in other games it's quite often you can't buy into that entanglement in the way that you wish or whether those players are going to do what you expect them to do with the company anyway or you've overspent and you've fallen down the hole of your own making sometimes the perception of control Mm. is enough though there's nothing mm-hmm. absolute control, but it's the perception of control. And I think this game opens with a perception of complete chaos. Mm. And despair. Yeah. yeah. Do you know um, do you know what they call my bald spot? They call it a helipad. Like, what does that even mean? It's like it's like a little, like a little mini remote control helicopter can land on my head. It's ridiculous. And also the coverage on the top of my head. I've got full coverage. It's just it's just light. It's thin. You can see through it. Oh my word, it's not like you got a hang-up at all. It's not even like I prompted you. Just, my word, I thought it was going to be my session, not yours. Jesus, jeepers creepers. Anyway, to answer your question, this is how you market the game to a wider audience. You theme all the game components around a standard deck of playing cards. Like you're gambling and bluffing. You're playing poker in an old Western saloon. You play them cards, fancy damn. Can't no one compel another man to engage in recreation. That's how you set expectations going in if you are a graphic designer. Well, not my table, Joe. Sometimes you can't whittle that block of clay into David. Sometimes you need to accept the fact that clay is going to be a pot. And if someone doesn't want a pot, then they're going to have to go out somewhere else to get their little statue of David. This is going to be a pot because it's it's wet and damp and can only be shaped so far. And this thing is going to be a wet, damp Colorado Midland, not a rock-hard David. Oh my god! Fucking hell! Do you do you play poker, Craig? In my games of poker, we play with uh, fixed opening hands, mm. and because we don't like the uh, randomness of the uh, of the flop, we we change that. And the river and the turn, they're fixed as well. And then everybody knows what they're doing. That's fair. I like the game just the way it is. Well, let's be serious. You do make a good point. Well, Dave has a point as well. Craig. <laughs> So before we move on to our positive review that's coming later in the show, I wanted to have a little section about psychoanalysis that I've decided not only to apply to Craig here, but the entire population of the United States. Riding horses and trains cross the mountains and plains With a secret too precious to be told You're a man who makes people afraid and that's dangerous. Well, it's what people know about themselves inside that makes them afraid. I bet you ain't never even been laid. How about that? And you're gonna tell me what feels women. I know enough to know that that great big dumb cowboy crap of yours don't appeal to nobody. 
The link between railways and sexual activity has long been known. In 1906, Sigmund Freud wrote that the connection between railway travel and sexuality derives from that pleasure of shaking during travel. He theorised that in the event of sexual repression, the person will experience anxiety when confronted by the railways, and he called that the fear of trains. And Carl Abraham later interpreted the fear of the motion of the train as a projection of the fear of uncontrolled sexuality. Have you ever um, experienced the fear of trains, Craig? No comment. So we'll return to that in a moment. Now, I've taken all the mind claims from the game, Ted Elspach's extensive questionnaire. I've added a number of academic articles about the American gold rush, and I've fed it all through LogicBot 4000, analysing the data using the hypergeometric distribution equation. Um, God rest Jeff's soul. And I think I can pinpoint why there's an attraction to Colorado and accurately explain what this game is all about. But don't worry, it's not in poem form because you you did say I couldn't do poetry anymore. Not since poetry, Kate, when we lost half our listeners. A stroke of your pen. Well, let's, let's try something. Maybe it'll draw them back in. <clears throat> Between 1858 and 1861, 100,000 gold seekers explored the Colorado Rockies in what was known as Pike's Peak Gold Rush. It was a chance for the common man to take what they wanted for themselves. And soon, communities began to form around these riches, and claims were taken by whomever had the powers to enforce them. Not so fast, Mr. Boss of the whole country, unless you want to wear a big hole in your middle. Gold and silver was there for the taking, but the terrain was a massive engineering problem. And now these narrow passes soon became the subject of incredible competition, and the fist fights and the gunslinging of the Wild West magnified to an industrial scale. The Rio Grande and the Santa Fe Railroad companies forming armed posses to seize and hold strategic points for the railways. Stone forts were built, construction work was sabotaged. At one point, Pueblo's town cannon was stolen and used to defend a railroad roundhouse. Desperate men venturing into the West to take whatever they could for themselves, like packs of dogs fighting over bacon. Now, isn't this exciting? I'm feeling a little shaken by all this myself. You can understand the draw to attempt to depict the history of Colorado. We have rails through the Rockies, Rocky Mountain Rails, which is an expansion John Bora designed as a, a literal fix for that original game. Tracks to Telluride, as previously mentioned, the advanced Tracks to Telluride expansion, Silverton, which actually predates Tracks by a couple of years and introduces a major innovation to train games, the use of the cube, and newer games, Colorado's Rocky Mountain High Railroads and Colorado Narrow Gauge by our very own Ian Scrivens. Very own, because, you know, we lock him away in our cellar along with Norm and... Who's that other one? Um, Jake Kloppenstein. Pronounce his name correctly, it's Germanic. Jake Kloppenstein. Yeah, he, he scurries around like a little goblin in the dark. <laughs> He's, the 
He's fucking massive, mate. You gotta be scared of Jake. That's why I keep the muscle on him. And Ian, Ian, Ian Scrivens, yeah. where's 18 Man? We've got to keep him down here until until he comes out with that game. If we weren't having an energy crisis, Joe, you could turn the light on more often so he could work on the game, as opposed to him scrambling around in the dark and able to see. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, where was I? I? Oh, yeah. A whole bunch of men fighting over nailing sleepers in those Colorado Rockies. And this was reflected in the mining communities, largely made up of men, where gambling, fighting and general lawlessness was common. And, attracted by the newfound wealth, brothels were commonplace. Soiled doves discarded by society, starved by poverty, barely fed by their madams, there to be taken night after night when the mines closed for the day. Ready to take a break from riding your nags to try one of mine? I've got just the girls for you today. Now, it wasn't covered in our not rules, but it is represented in the game by something oh, called the... Oh, 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 oh stop, what? stop. Let me go do the voice for this. Big boner. Craig, that is not... Oh. It's called the big bonus. Yes, the big, the big boner, Joe, the big boner. The big bonus is a mechanism in the game where players get a massive single point if they have a claim in the conveyor when a rail company connects to a city, which... It doesn't sound like a lot, but it can make a huge difference to the outcome of the game. Definitely. If you're nicking the odd point here and there, or if you are not dropping any points, it can create a gap between you and the other players that's quite tangible. You know what, Craig? I got some angry comments from the last episode demanding we take it down. I don't know what we're going to get as a result of this. Uh, well, maybe they'll ask us to keep it up. I'll stop. <laughs> I'll stop. Sorry, sorry, go in Cripple Creek, there was a high market brothel, the old homestead, owned by Pearl Devere. Well, she died one night in an $800 shell pink chiffon gown, complete with sequins and pearls after an overdose of morphine on a night of a lavish party, sponsored by a millionaire surrounded by French champagne and two orchestras. An abuser abused, she had the most extraordinary funeral the town had ever seen. Crowds filling the streets for her procession, a display of wealth and greed and lust, a juxtaposition of extreme affluence in its neighbouring poverty and ill treatment. Frederick Jackson Turner wrote that the frontier experience transformed Europeans into new people. Now, according to David M. Robel, the psychological impact of the frontier officially closing in 1890 was very significant. There was no longer an opportunity to settle and conquer wild lands, so Americans looked for new outlets to recreate the frontier experience, something he coined frontier anxiety. This anxiety gave rise to organised sports, transcontinental expansion, colonisation, and the romanticised depictions of the era. I'll stay along with the boys. After this, I'll probably have to buy him a drink or two. All in an attempt to hold on to and preserve this frontier spirit. And these romanticised depictions began there and then with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. 
We all know Buffalo Bill, of course, from his time hired by the Kansas Pacific Railroad to supply its workers with buffalo meat. And the Wild West show emphasized masculinity and the domestication of the West, where men protected their women from the dangers of the wild. Part of his show stage a recreation of Custer's The Last Stand, a tableau in which the general is dressed all in yellow, would inspire a painting that would become the centre to an advertising campaign for Budweiser beer. Beer for real men of apparent genius. Get on your feet and face the enemy! According to the Western Historical Quarterly, the Virginia Reel, a display of courtship, was performed on horseback and emphasised the grateful relief from the blood-curling depictions of violence that preceded it, a mating ritual for the cowboys, light relief in the show to ensure the performance didn't create anxieties or threaten the masculinity of the men in the audience. From here, we have a new American male identity, the protector, the strong, the silent and the violent. A man who will take what they want and protect it, reinforced by the Second Amendment and the sickly gun culture, which could be coupled to Freudian phallic symbols, and a sanitising of the culture where prostitution of the time is romanticised and celebrated and turned into a tourist attraction. Young Ben took me for a sunrise ride. And the horse wandered away. Keep it under your hat. And so Colorado Midland is an extension of this frontier anxiety. And when I get that feeling, A game which continues in the tradition of the frontier, a cultural product that allows the players to experience the greed of manifest destiny, the gold rush, the death of Pearl Devere, gunfights, murder, the fear of trains, and the sexual desires of the lonely men who want to take it all. And a fierce critique of all the above. It's a pile of cards and some cubes and a really weird looking map. It does none of those things. Well, it's the only reason I can think of why each mine claim in Colorado and Midland is a nickname for a penis. Oh. Well, all, all except one, I might add, which is named after Martin Wallace, which I assume it's because John Borer um, thought was a great penis. Um, in pe- Pianist, it's good, good with his hands, Craig. Why? Cannot... Why? We... <laughs> Now, no, um, uh, no, uh, you cannot cry, my Wallace is a lovely bloke. No, we're a bad podcast for bad people, Craig. And if you allow me, Craig, it can all be summed up in a rhyming couplet. Fucking hell, could we not have just had the rhyming couplet? Could we have not just not had the rhyming couplet and not had to sit through that for 10 minutes? Too much of a good thing will make you lose your sight. You'll wake up in the morning, dark as the night. How did Jeff die anyway? Well, I'll get the doctor in for this. Jeff Engelstein died with a horrible tropical disease that led to the withering away of his left arm and his right bollock. <laughs> um, that sounds more like uh, Davros than the doctor. Oh, did it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I can't hear any of this. Really? I've got monitor feed. I've got no idea. I'm just picking the one with the right name. When I joined him, his left hand and his left ear were already gone. Oh, man. Uh, just laughing over poor man's. You know, he's, he's a good man. Perhaps he might have survived, Joe, if he'd have rubbed snake oil into it. He's got to do something for a living these days. <laughs> Diane ain't much of a living, boy. And now, something you've all been waiting for. 
a lesser spotted positive review from the train rush. Joe, Joe, stop. Huh? Joe, we don't have the license for that one, Joe. Ah. Okay? We don't have the license for that one. Ah, okay. Uh, I have to think of something else. So this week's positive review is for the card game Haggis. How would you rate the components for Haggis? Out of five, Craig, out of five. I'm going to say 4.5. Oh, that's a pretty good review. Near, nearly ideal. Nearly ideal, Jay. What, how would you improve Haggis? The tokens. I think there's tokens in there. Um... The tokens not be not being made out of silk screened wood, Joe. Yeah, that that is a disappointment. I sound really passionate, don't I? No, do you sound like you really like this game, which is a positive thing. I'm hoping the listeners can read those signals you're sending out, Joe. Cheers. 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 So, um, I think it's about time we talked about why we love Colorado Midland. I'm gonna Get down off them horses. I don't favor looking up to the likes of you. Like waking up hungover with no memory of that drunken game of Twister you seem to have started but not finished, you find yourself already entangled with all the players around the table at the very beginning of this game. So, that starting hand immediately begins to inform your strategy. Everyone's hand is open and you're looking around the table and you're matching up your incentives there and then. And you know it's impractical to score them all. So we have this initial opening dance about, okay, which cards am I going to put out early to, for want of a better term, potentially throw away? Because the mines that are not connected at the end of the round, some of them will disappear. Now, it's likely at the very beginning of the game that no railroad reaches these mines that you are betting the railway will hit. But this isn't an insular decision because you can watch everyone else's decision as you go round the table, each putting a mine claim in one at a time. And you are making a decision about which mining districts have people written off already. And at that very moment, you've got to decide which path or paths you're going to go. Will you try and stretch across the map because you've got some high point scoring mine claims? Well, Mary, she's got loads of those three pointers. So maybe getting rid of the five pointers and lining up with what she's going to be doing will pay off better than striking out alone across the map. Yeah, it's not just a decision, it's a signal. Yeah, You're signaling to others what interests you are willing to throw away. Maybe I hold a little bit more of the five-point blue mine than Joe, but I need Joe to work with me on it because he's the only other person at this table in his three-player game who's got any blue at all. So maybe I'm signalling to Joe that I'm willing to share the proceeds of blue with him by throwing away some blue cards early on. You know, we've got two cards each rather than Craig having four and I'm having two. Why should I help Craig get all the way to Silverton when I'm only going to get half the amount of points back? So we're making the claims left in our hands more palatable potentially or does he misread that signal does he say well if Craig's not interested well I'm not interested so Joe throws away his measly few blue cards he's got leaving me alone with a load of blue cards that I have no chance blue balls if you will blue balls that will never oh man (laughs) 
just, we're gonna have to yeah anyway blue cards that <laughs> blue cards that will never be realized into into a fine array of points sorry you do mention blue I, I just want to make a slight interjection here in making this game ready to play I altered the colors of the mine claims so that they were more distinct from each other so that you can read them across the table so back to point I'm willing to say this part of my hand I'm committing to not scoring or maybe if they're close ones and I'm looking at other players at the table who also have ones that are close I'm signaling to them a desire to try and score these things quick can we hit these in the opening rounds Mm-hmm. Now, I could say all this stuff in the opening dance. Now we're good at the game, inverted commas, good by our own standards, which basically means we're not trying to eat the pieces as we play. We try and communicate this stuff through the dance of placing the pieces on the board and little coy winks at each other. There's more to that opening dance than initially seems. You're not, it's not just a declaration of what you're going to score. It's a declaration of what you're not willing to score. It's a declaration of what cards you're willing to burn to enable you to maybe double score something later down the line. What things are you committed to? to and to what degree i think it's a lot more nuanced in that opening than is superficially readable yeah, so we spoke about the the perils of entanglement earlier, but this is actually why this game is so enjoyable. Like that game of Twister, where all the players are wrapped around each other, I might be whispering sweet nothings in Eleanor's ear, all the while actually rubbing Jonathan's knee under the table. You're making an offer. Each card you shed is a is a different proposal, and and someone might react and go, "Oh, are you saying this?" And you go, oh, "Maybe." Maybe you're bluffing, or maybe you're just like you bimbled into doing a clever thing. I think the magic in this game comes when you are communicating through your actions. Every action you take in this game is a signal. If you don't play it that way and, you don't, and you're not thinking at that level, trying to read what other people are doing and laying cubes in a way to send signals to other players or when you other players putting cards on the conveyor belt, if you were just ignoring their cards and only focusing on your cards and when you place your cards in that conveyor belt, you're not thinking about what other people will read into that declaration. You're playing about one-tenth of this game. And every time you play into the conveyor belt, of these closing mines, it is weakening, but also potentially strengthening your ties to different players too. But as soon as you make that kind of revelation, when you see that in action, then that is the kind of language that you can use in a future game, and you wouldn't have to talk around it at all. Like semaphore, like a simple grammar, step by step, you are learning this new language as you play. A language which might not be crystal clear all the time, particularly if you're inputting new players to the mix with additional plays, kind of adding potentially to that sense of lack of control, a control not grasped until everyone around the table has developed an understanding of the shared language. What I found was a good transition to get novice players up to speed was being explicit with the communication. Although our discussion around Ride the Rails about how maybe rather than just like muddling through the game and not really enjoying the rich tapestry of that communication, if it's necessary for your group to talk to make that signaling happen, Joe, I am doing this because I want this. doesn't have to be, you don't have to play that way forever. If you and I are both at the psych brain link and we know we know what's going on but poor old dale's sitting there and he's got no idea why you react when i place a cube here or why i'm reacting when you place a claim there it's okay to bring them into the fold and this isn't just restricted to the scoring conveyor although it plays a big part in codifying and displaying that information so let's say you could build towards Crested Butte because you know that Jimmy has quite a big hand in Crested Butte and he wants to go to Crested Butte. The quicker 
it can get to Crested Butte means that you can strike off the end of that to head down towards Telluride. And it might be that you actually share a few Crested Butte cards anyway. So it's not complete. You're, you're not handing the win to Jimmy here. Yeah. This game is a very good exercise in incentive reading and informal alliance building. So there are multiple pathways to get to different places. Some are more difficult than others. Some look more difficult than others, but actually turn out to be completely equal, depending on the terrain type versus the action point allowance. But there are opportunities to avoid certain places if you wish to. So it may be perceived that one player has got a really strong hand. They've got a big clump of Leadville claims, and Leadville isn't too difficult to get to. But players could band together to avoid Leadville, or at least not contribute towards that building direction. So it's going to spend a lot of that one player's actions if no one's cooperating with them. And it might actually be impossible to reach Leadville with two railroads if there's only one person working on that. So great hands or perceived great hands might not get the scoring opportunities that look like the great scoring opportunities that could come from them through semi-cooperation. I mean, that's the other side of open information and incentive management, right? It's not just about trying to make something good of a bad hand. It's the players who collectively can see that somebody has got a very high potential hand if certain things happen, collectively trying to ensure that that thing doesn't happen. There's that whole kind of piece of the players are the governor. With this, if you can see there's a weaker player, then maybe you can work with them more to work towards your aims because you think they've got less scoring potential. But maybe if everybody makes that read, they've got the best scoring potential at the table. It's when everybody is coming into this for the first time with no idea how to play it and the winner's feel somewhat arbitrary oh it's because you held all those fives well sure but an experience table wouldn't let all those fives score it's also possible to build tempting lines so you're building in a direction that maybe another player wasn't working on but now they've actually seen that oh there is hope for that particular mining district. And so Sandra is now thinking, okay, yeah, I I will go for those mine claims that I had in my hand, which I thought I was going to throw away. And then they start building that way too. I think there's another aspect of the way this the building is designed in this as well. You are encouraged to, if anything, do mixed builds because if you run out of cubes on a company or it hits a dead end, you must use all five build points for some company that exists. So for instance, if I'm primarily interested in building the Silverton Express, there's nothing stopping me lending you a cube or two to help you advance your interests so I get my card that I've opportunistically laid in the conveyor belt firing off. And this ties into some of the reasons why you might want to start a new company. We talked about how just placing that single cube feels a bit dissatisfying, but not only are you setting a position for new routes, especially because these are narrow little lanes that you're traversing through creeks and mountains and there is potential for railways to be blocked off but starting new railroad allows for more efficient builds on the map so if you have reached as far as you can with the company that's your primary concern because you've hit something that's too chunky to move over let's say you've used four of the build points to get to a mountain that requires four build points itself to get over well rather than chucking the, the extra cube advancing a company you don't want to advance or 
draining a bag you don't want to drain. You can use it on this newly minted company that you had the foresight to create three rounds ago. Yeah, another aspect of that feeling maybe of a lack of control in this game is the fact that there's the passing of the action that allows you to start a railway. You can only do that as it comes round and round clockwise around the table. We have an accepted term for that show. It's on the hockey. We're going to use that now as, on, a, as the podcast. On the hockey. Write that down, please. On the hockey. We've seen that mechanism in Erie Railroad as well, right? Where only the player who's on the hockey has the option of selling down their shares as part of their turn. And we've had the complaint before when we played Erie Railroad that, oh, it's just too good situationally. But the fact that you can only do it every so often is partly what lends it meaning. And you have to pick that moment of control when you have it. I'm talking about Colorado Midland here. You've got to plan that in advance. Can I start a company which will fulfill what I want it to do? Do I need to do that as my very first turn in this game? Do I need to do this when it comes round to me? Do I need to do this several times? You have to jump onto that little window of control and and grasp it because that's the strategy that you're following. So if you have a hand full of close range cards, none of the long range ones, then you could argue the incentive is pretty much written on the wall. Every time it comes to you on the hockey, you should be starting a new company and you are potentially changing the scoring dynamics. Here's the thing. In setting up more companies, you limit the range of all the companies in the game. And there's a moment of pure delight as well when a player thinks they're going to connect to a long-range thing and there's only one company left and it's come to you on the hockey. You look at them meaningfully in the eyes and you reach for the bag and they look at you going... Oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. But you do, Joe. You do. <laughs> and all that building work they've done prior to that is ruined by your forceful grabbing of their bag. <laughs> There's a lot to enjoy while playing this game. And another thing that I think makes it interesting is that there's a real dynamism to the building. You are putting the accelerator on or off, depending on how much you need to get to a certain place. So you may, yeah, trickle in a couple of cubes there, but you've got your foot down, smashing away across the map if you desperately need to get somewhere else. But then if another player starts helping you with those builds, then maybe you can let go of the accelerator and concentrate on another area of your hand, building in different directions at a speed that you want to play. And the reasons you might want to hold off or speed up depends entirely on those mind claims in the conveyor belt. What's lined up to score? Who's going to score it? Do I want to reach that town now when I haven't got any claims in the row? And I think it's to the point where you can do nuanced little things like you can needle another player by leaving them one cube out of range for their claim because you know during this admin phase that you're going to have an opportunity to place a card in the conveyor belt for the claim they're about to make. Yeah, sure, I'm willing for that claim to happen next round Mm -hmm. and then you end up with this kind of if i build one does the next player then build at all maybe those builds that i assumed they were going to make because the way they set up they think well if you're not going to do it i'm not going to do it there's a real tension i think if you've got mine claims on the row and you know that another player has got a mine claim which is at the top of the mine claims ready just to disappear into the vapor and yours isn't then they're going to be forced to build into that so they're not losing points. This is where Jimmy was very good at the game, right? Jimmy played this in a way that essentially meant that you were taking his turns for him. Yeah, so on those turns, he essentially had 10 build points that round, one or two of which he might have been using to corner you, and the other three he was using to advance his own interests, and your five were accounted for by his decision. Good old Jimbo. 
<laughs> Another thing that ties into this is the other action, closing a mine. Not only are you doing that for positive reasons for yourself, so you've chucked it into the, the row because you want to preserve the rest of your hand for when that scoring matters. And now you're closing that dud mine to put in the relevant scoring mine at the right time. Not only can you do that, but removing your card at the front of the row, you're potentially moving another player's mine claim into jeopardy because they're now within that closing status at the end of the round. And so that's another way that you could potentially get someone to build somewhere you think they should build because they were thinking, oh, it, it's okay, I've got another turn in this. But now you've just manipulated the order of the mine claims and now it will close. And now they're in a desperate position. They actually need to build that way to receive the points that they were hoping to get from that mine claim. Mm. Maybe I'm willing to close my one-point scorer that is going to score this round and stick something not scoring at the back of the queue if it means Fred loses his card now, whilst it's also a non-scorer. You know, because it's a five-point card. I'll chuck a point so you lose a potential of five. Alternatively, it's the value of inferiority. I'm at the back of the turn order this round. You know, you've got the first player, I've got the last player. You've taken your move and on the basis of the calculations you've made on what's going to score, that I shake the bag of rocks and uh, throw the thing that you didn't think was subject to deletion into deletion. There's a little nuance there. You can do something from the last player position. And also, you could use that action to effectively pass on doing anything productive on the map. So that is your alternative. You've got to build for something, and you might not want to build for anything, especially if you see that the end of the game is coming. And, and you're leading, right? You want the yep. end of the game yep. to come quickly. It's perfectly viable to say, you know, I'm going to take some points now, make less rounds available in this game overall. You have to plan it in advance, though, don't you? Let's be honest. Like, each individual card you shed isn't that big a proportion of the clock. It's For me, it's about doing it pretty regularly to double score your stuff as well. Just controlling the clock isn't enough by itself. You have to use it to enable a double scoring, I think. It would create a bias towards the action. I don't think you would necessarily... You would do it on turns where you had nothing better to do or... an obvious opportunity came up for double scoring it would bias me more towards taking the action if my hand was made of a certain composition versus the other players which is a whole lot of words for not saying a whole lot of anything anybody can action really but it's just trying to give a sense of how that clock control works it's not a the course thing where you go and now i sell all my shares to make the bank break during the stock round we're only playing three more ors now tough luck guys it's not as coarse as that it's not as explosive as that it's more uh oh i think i've got a hand that's going to do well if the game's short i should try and leverage this action a bit more often during the game and talking about forcing the hand of another player, this can also be done in terms of the double bagging. You and your little alliance don't want the other player to reach the high-scoring mines. You badly don't want the yellow company to extend its roots because Joe likes the yellow company. So you build for the red company, which is just something you're interested in. It's got tons of cubes left. Knowing that your compatriot is going to have to empty the black bag to grab the blue cubes into its holdings. But you force them to do that. Or belling the cat. That's it. Uh, JC Lawrence introduced me to the term for one of his BGG posts about belling the cat, where you essentially try and duck the obligation and the last person who can possibly fulfill that obligation either behaves rationally and fulfills the obligation to spite the player who would otherwise win, shall we say. Win from this interaction, not necessarily the whole game. Alternatively, they make a meta play where they go, nah, you're never having me bell the cat again, mate. I'm going to duck it and just let him have the points. That's forgivable, right? That's understandable. That Maybe in your house, 
house. In my house, it's not. Claire, what kind of punishments do you uh, deal out to your daughter when she uh, behaves irrationally? I feed her to Jake, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jake, Ian, Scrivens and Norm get to fight for her meat. Yeah, Jake always gets the lion's share. This is a big brutish man he is. Those fangs, God. They call him the Minneapolis Moor, you know. Oh. M-A-W, as in a jar, as in a mouth. He hasn't really got a body. <laughs> if you drive off-road in Minneapolis, it's like um, yeah. that scene in Return of the Jedi where the big thing in the desert just sucks in Boba Fett. That's like Jake. He just says, you drive down the wrong bit of Minneapolis and, you, and your Chevrolet dips into the Minneapolis Moor and that's it, you're gone forever. <laughs> well, thank you for explaining the term belling the cat. My pleasure. I'm here for helping you with the details, Joe. I'm the fact controller, as we well know. <laughs> Have you got a fact controller voice? I don't know. Uh, that one's under copyright, I'm afraid. Can you use your shouty voice to say something like, get back in your engine shed, you naughty little engine? We're not here for your kinks. Can we move on with the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was all about the kinks and the penises. <laughs> I'm, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm sorry if I've left you with that impression. I'm sorry. I, sorry, I've said that like the kinks and the penises, like the penises were another 1960s rock band. I'd listen to that album. <laughs> I'm imagining one of your game nights, you put a record on Jonathan now, all in leather. <laughs> So am I, but I was, do- I was doing that before the recording. So. With the mask and whatever, the, the zips on the eyes or something. Oh, yeah, Just the, the top with the bare naked oh, bottom. Safe word, safe word, safe word, safe word. Uh, just so you know, my safe word is Harry Wu, okay? So. Feeling sugar like a kid. Well, they whip kids to teach them better. They what? Do you know why I really love this game? And it's something so strikingly obvious that only came to me recently. It's the the scoring mechanism and it's the immediacy of the scoring mechanism. I was thinking about how games are scored most often and it's usually something which is concerned at the conclusion of the game. And often I like it. it yeah, 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 I see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, it's that visibility on the clock. It's watching the race pan out and it's exciting because you're watching us crawl away from each other and it doesn't seem like much. But then as we get to the further mind claims, the gaps explode a bit and something we can create some air between us and all. Can Craig do something down south that tightens it up? You're watching the performance pan out live and direct. You are looking at every single point as it clocks up and these points are awarded or not after every player has taken one single action so we have a scoring round and a scoring round and a scoring round and your eyes are constantly on the other player's hands and on that conveyor belt and you're flicking between the map and the conveyor belt and where you're going to build and you're thinking how can I use my single action to manipulate that scoring track? How can I prevent other players from scoring? How can I double, how can I triple my own scoring prospects? It's a speedo, right? Not only is it the register of who wins and who loses, it should drive the incentives and the alliances and the communications being made around the table because we can see right now who's doing better. Not some kind of implied thing of, oh, look, Fred's holding a load of wood and maybe he's holding the wood scoring card that's hidden under his, you know, under his player mat. No, we explicitly know that right now these things are set to score. Fred's got more points than us. How do we stop this? Yeah, and you were alluding to games that may have hidden scoring, but also games with open money. How a player is doing is not often determined by the piles of chips in front of them. And 
going back to South African railroads again, there's an excitement in that the fact that the scoring is obscured by dilution at the end of the game and you're also awarded value based on the, the structural efforts of the railroad. And you, yeah, you know, it comes to a really exciting conclusion where unless you've looked at absolutely everything and counted up every person's chip on the table and you've counted all the cubes and you've done the division, there is an excitement to that end game scoring. This, this is exactly what makes Colorado Midland significantly different and exciting for it. Agreed. You don't want all your games to be the same, but even though what superficially sounds like it would be boring, when you're in the weeds of it, it's anything but. Yeah, exactly. And when you've got the negotiation, the signals, the bluffing with other players, as well as the the card play that strengthens and weakens your ties to the other players. The force turns, the potential for blocking on the map. Talk about a single cube feeling pointless when you start a company. When you place a single cube in a mountain pass, blocking all the work a player's done trying to double score their mine, that's the obvious. That's the single cube that really matters. There's so many positive aspects of this game. Do you think you've learned anything about yourself today? I say, Joe, for the record, a man can change, and as can a man-child. I guess I had a gag reflex to playing Euros for so many blooming years. This taught me that actually a lot of interesting decision space can live in points-only games. This and ride the rails, actually. So thank you, John Bora, for making me love victory points again. Do you want to do something approaching a conclusion? Shall we do conclusions? I don't know. I still don't think we sound positive enough about this game. You know, our critics will accuse us of not blindly supporting independent designers again. Norm? Uh, yes, yes, I'm, I'm here. Um, what did you think of uh, Colorado Midland? Colorado Midland, okay. This is um, probably my number one game of all time now. How many Cubra games have you played? I'd say a good... Three. Fabulous. How many times have you played Colorado Midland? Including the one with you guys. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so just that one time. Do you think, maybe, that your focus on single-player games might have biased you to thinking this is the best game of all time because it's the only game you've ever played with another person? If, if anything, Craig, playing this with other people was a... was a detriment on this game? There you go. There, there is an expert gamer providing you with an overview of the highest quality that you should definitely consider as part of your purchasing decision for a £100 plastic clamshell containing craft paper. Absolutely. Well, as the northbound goes through at midnight, any luck and I think we can get you and that gold on it before anybody else jumps us. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, Absolutely. you can reach us on Twitter at the train rush you can engage with us via pictures using instagram the underscore train underscore rush you can contact us on facebook search for the train rush alternatively you can email us craig at the train if you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum why not come to our board game geek guild number 3342 absolutely thank you for listening i'm ian scrivens and i only buy my prototype cubes from cubes for me. Well, I mean cubes for you. Cubes for me. For me? Uh, who's that? 
Hello, this is me, Ufa Rosenberg. Don't, don't you hate it when you design a game with cubes and someone comes along and replaces your game with little pieces of wood in the shape of little farmyard animals or steam engines? Well, every, every, every time... Sorry, Ian. What was that? I do hate that. I do hate that, Uve. I do hate that. Yeah, I thought you might. So every time that happens to me, I, I go... <laughs> I go to cubes for me and buy little wooden cubes to replace the nonsense shapes. Uh, they also sell plastic trays to store those cubes in now, you know, Uwe. Oh, do they? Do they? I I know they also sell little wooden sticks. I know you're designing a little wooden sticks game. It's meant to be a cube rail game, but you're using little wooden sticks. Well, that's because cubes for me let me have them for a discount because I do the adverts for them. Oh, is there a discount code we can share with our audience? <laughs> There is, there is. I'm Ian Scrivens. Type in, in block capital letters, I'm Ian Scrivens, and you will get 99% off. And I have no idea why he's gone <laughs> far off of Irish the farmer. Oh, I don't know either. Cubes for me, cubes for you, cubes for everyone. <laughs> 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 oh, I can't believe you can't even hear your own voice. Oh dear. Oh, let me try, let me, let me, let me try that. Let me just... Cubes for me. Cubes for you. Cube. Oh, oh, damn! Fucking put the voice in <laughs> here. Cubes for me. Cubes for you. Cubes for everyone. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha